Hi, my name is Joe. I'll be reading our scripture for today. You can join me in the YouVersion app or in your Bibles. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Thanks, Joe. Good morning. I'm uh, excited to continue with you uh, through the series uh, that we've entitled Illuminated. Illuminated. This morning's uh, message is actually entitled Expectation. And so we're picking up uh, and continuing in the Illuminated series with uh, a title of Expectation. And I've thought uh, a lot about different times that I've had expectations not met. Um, it seems like it's kind of a rhythm of just living life, right? You have an expectation and all of a sudden it doesn't play out the way you want. And uh, maybe it happens to me more often than you, I don't know. Um, but it's definitely happened quite a bit in my life. There was one time in particular um, when I was growing up, I used to, if you've been attached to Centerway for any amount of time, you might have heard me tell a story about um, the way I used to spend my summers um, Growing up, I spent my summers clearing woods with my father. Uh, we heated with a wood stove, and so when all my friends were going on vacations to amazing places, I was going to the forest with a chainsaw, <laughs> and uh, like, where are you going this summer? Like, right down the road, <laughs> going to clear all that wood. Um, and so, you know, we would, we would clear uh, wood. We would cut trees down and split wood and stack wood and then carry the wood inside and burn the wood. It was horrifying. Uh, when, uh, when I got married, when I went off to college, my dad bought a log splitter. And uh, all of a sudden, there was this gas-powered log splitter. I was like, Dad, what's up with this? And he's like, well, because my log splitter went off to college. I'm like, <laughs> you're funny. And uh, then I got married, and he bought a furnace. And uh, that was it. My parents were nice and toasty, and yay for them. Anyway, not that I'm bitter, but I am. Uh, in either case, I remember one time in particular, uh, it was kind of cool when you're younger to be around chainsaws and split wood and stuff like that. Like there's an element of fun and excitement around it. And uh, I had been allowed to delimb the trees. When they would be cut down, I would go in and with a smaller chainsaw, I would delimb uh, these trees. And that means cut the branches off uh, in case... You have a furnace. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we, and so uh, it was kind of like the thing I was allowed to do. And I remember there was some talk this one summer about how I would uh, be given the opportunity to actually drop some trees. There was a, a row of trees, and it was kind of in a clearing. It was a low risk involved. I had been... Um, doing this for quite some time. I was a teenager, and, uh, and so my dad's like, yeah, I think you can probably drop some trees. So I was just like over the moon ecstatic to cause some real destruction instead of just, you know, limbing along. And, uh, and so we're getting ready. We get to the woods at just an ungodly hour. Uh, it was as bad as I'm making it sound. It really was. Uh, but in either case, we, we go there or super early and, um, my dad's, you know, we're gassing everything up and we're starting uh, to clear some woods. And my dad has this run that he's working uh, up on a ridge. And I 
and I'm going down getting ready to drop some trees, uh, all excited. And uh, my dad's like, actually, you know what, Claude, you're not going to drop those trees today. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I am. I am. Like, these are the ones I'm going to drop. Remember, they're down here in this valley, and I'm going to do these ones, and then I'm going to come up and delimit. He's like, no, no, it's just too windy up on the ridge, so you're not going to drop those today. And I was like, no, I think we agreed that I actually would drop these trees today. Like, remember, because of all these reasons. And, uh, and he's like, no, it's just, it's not safe. And uh, I was so frustrated. I was so disappointed and just annoyed that I had finally had this opportunity to, to really cause some destruction, <laughs> have some fun, and uh, my dad's taking it away. And, I, and so I just start telling him all the reasons why I'm ready, all the reasons why I'm responsible, all the reasons I can be trusted to do it. And he's like, you're not hearing what I'm saying. Listen to me. It's not safe. I was like, what's not safe about it? I was like, I'm down here. There's these trees. We've kept them aside so I could do it. I'm laying out my argument again. And he's like, I'm not going to let you do it. The answer is no. And I was just so frustrated. And so I remember going back or going over by the truck and I'm sitting down, I'm frustrated. And I'm like in my mind making this argument about how I'm never going to be allowed to do anything. <laughs> you guys remember that? That might've been yesterday for you. You know, <laughs> like I'm never going to be allowed to do anything. Why does he hate me? You know, like, uh, just my, my world is coming to an end because I'm not allowed to cut a tree down. And, uh, and so he starts dropping some trees. And uh, as he's going along, he calls over and just says, hey, you can start delimbing these. And I'm like, I'm going to delimb them, like whatever. And so I'm annoyed. And uh, sure enough, as it happens, um, he drops probably somewhere between a 60, 80 foot tree up on this ridge and the wind catches it at the top. And if you've never seen anything like that, the way trees sway, it doesn't matter how, how much weight is one way or how it is that you've planned it. Um, if the wind catches it, especially up on a ridge, it just spun it around, dropped it off the stump, and just falls right into the valley and just hits the trees that I would have been cutting down where I would have been and just absolutely splinters them in amazing fashion. Like if you've ever seen a huge tree fall on a smaller one, it just bends it over and literally splinters it like in a millisecond. And so these trees just come tearing down and I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, I would have been dead. And I'm like looking at him and, and I look up and my dad's like this. <laughs> and he's just smiling at me looking and I'm like, darn it, I hate when he's right. You know, like what in the world? I was just so frustrated. And I'm looking down, I'm thankful that I'm alive. <laughs> and I'm watching these trees be splintered. And the, the reason why I, I tell you that story and why I talk about this idea of expectation is because I want to ask you a question. Why are you thrown when things don't go your way? Why are you thrown when things don't go your way? I think there's a, a lot of different reasons. I mean, there's, there's the obvious reason that like, maybe you're at a level of immaturity where you're just like, because I want things my way. That's why. And when they don't go my way, I'm angry. And so maybe it's just an immature, if you're honest with yourself, response. I want things my way. But I want to submit to you that we get thrown that we get really thrown when things don't go our way because of our perspective and our expectation. Because of our perspective and our expectation. And I believe the two are linked in a very profound way. If we're uh, able to kind of step back from the situation, it's rather obvious. But in the moment, we're often annoyed at best and entirely derailed at worst. Because, I mean, obviously, if you, if you took me aside right after I watched those trees just absolutely explode and splinter everywhere, and, and you pulled me aside and said, aren't you glad you're not down there? I'd have been like, yes. 
They're like, do you see that your dad had a perspective that you didn't? Of course. You had an expectation that wasn't met? Yes. In the moment, it's so obvious. Or that's why we have that saying, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Because it's always clear after the fact. Well, I should say most of the time it's clear after the fact, right? Aren't there certain things that you go through in life that you look back on and you're like, I still don't get it. I just will never understand. There's certain things that, that we just won't understand on this side of heaven that we'll just never be able to grasp. Because honestly, like if we had control over it, we'd have played it out differently. In fact, <laughs> in certain circumstances, we kind of think maybe we might be a little better at this thing than, than God. Like maybe we have a better perspective. I mean, come on, God. Like doesn't this make sense? Like this one should have worked out this way. You see, we all have a thought on how things should go. And it's based on what we know. It's based on what it is that we see, what it is that we think we know. This is our perspective. It's the information that we have, whether it's data-based, information-based, experience-based, whatever the basis is, that's your perspective. It's your vantage point. And then from that perspective, we form an expectation. The way we think things should work out. Of course, we don't always have the full picture. Now, the way we naturally function as humans, Christian or not, I know that there's a mixture of people in the room that, that may not profess Christ at all, all the way up to people that are committed Christ followers. But regardless of where you are in your faith journey, most of us will do whatever we can to avoid pain. And in a lot of cases, we'll do our best to avoid obvious suffering. We'll go to great lengths to only suffer for the things we deem worthy suffering for. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago about how actually we will suffer based on the things that we want or the things that matter to us. But in general sense, if we don't have to suffer, if we don't have to go through pain, we won't. We'll avoid it. There's a cultural example of that where uh, we want to work hard when we're young so we can relax when we're old. We call that retirement, right? It's kind of like the goal of most people. Sometimes in Christendom, we have this similar sort of thought, this idea of put in your effort so that you can relax. And um, I think it matriculates and falls over or spills into, I guess is a better way of saying it, that it spills into different areas of life. When it comes into Christendom, it's kind of, we want life with Jesus because we think that it might mean an easier life. I remember when I was younger, the way that different well-meaning people would talk about this idea of being a Christian. It sounded like, you know, nothing ever went wrong. Listen, if you just surrender to Jesus, God's going to give you all the answers. Like, all of a sudden you'll know and you'll be running through a field and, you know, birds will be chirping and you'll be tripping over gold bars that you'll just try and pick up and carry and the blessings of the Lord will shine down upon you. You'll be like, I'm so glad I serve Jesus. Look at all the money and people. And you know, like, it, it was this absurd idea. In fact, some of us have heard really poor theology that Christianity equals easy. That Christianity equals blessings around every corner. And so then, when difficulty or pain comes in this world, we think there's this huge cosmic injustice. That in some way, God is unfair. I put in all the time. I did all the things. I followed all the rules. God owes me. 
It's this weird, twisted perception of spirituality, of, of Christianity, where we think that we've put in enough to where now God owes us something. Like, God, why would bad things happen? It's just not fair. Our perspective has informed our expectation. What it is that we see, what it is that we know, what it is that people have told us has started to formulate our expectation. And so we get frustrated when things don't go our way. And so the author of Hebrews is masterfully masterfully using the proper reading of the Old Testament to clarify an accurate perspective. An accurate perspective so that we can have illuminated expectation. That our expectation can be aligned with Scripture. That we can realize what it is that we can actually expect in this world. And I think it's going to be a little bit different than you might think when we're done. Last week we concluded with verse 9 of chapter 2 where we learned that, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. That his death was substitutionary. That's harder to say than I realized. <laughs> and that honestly it was unfair. Right? Isn't that interesting that we so readily declare how unfair God is to us at times, but the reality of our salvation, that the, the fact that we can have freedom from the sin of our life is contingent upon the greatest injustice of all time. You want to talk about unfair? How about dying a death you don't deserve? How about walking into a room knowing you are entirely innocent and remaining silent while people blame you for everything to the point where you would silently go to a cross and lay down your life? The closest equivalent we have in modern day is the electric chair. So if you can think about that, if you can think about someone going through the, through the process of being tried in an unfair rigged trial where they're declared guilty and all of a sudden facing death by execution, all the while knowing that they're completely innocent and all the while saying, I'll do it. I'll remain silent. Complete injustice and totally unfair. And our salvation is contingent upon it. Your whole faith journey is actually contingent upon what is really not fair. And yet we have the gall to be like, I can't believe it, God. That check bounced. It is so unfair. (laughs) Why, God, why? I lost my job, you know? So interesting how we kind of dilute the world based on our perspective. He paid a penalty for a sin that he never committed. And so verse 10, in the section of the text that we have this morning, says, for it was fitting. So he tasted death for everyone, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. Seems counterintuitive. Completely different than we would have played out the story. Completely different than the way a good Hebrew or Jewish boy or girl would play out the story of a Messiah coming based on the way that they would read the Old Testament. Believing that, that Jesus or the Messiah would come in as a king and overthrow Roman government and set them free. This whole expectation. In fact, the disciples tell Jesus, hey, can I stand on your right side while you rule over the kingdom? what are you talking about? Like, well, you're going to overthrow everything, right? Like, we're going to take over this whole world, aren't we? You are the Messiah. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, you still don't get it. 
you still don't understand. But it's because their perspective was informing their expectation. That's why Peter comes literally unhinged. The disciples scatter and yet they come back together because of the truth of what they had learned during that journey. Verse 10 marks a shift. A a shift towards the relational and familial aspects of the gospel. But don't miss the doctrine of incarnation that's being established. The the doctrine of incarnation is, is simply that God became human. That he was both God and human and that he came in, that he stepped into humanity. That he suffered a death he didn't deserve. And so if you look to verse 9 real quick just to kind of get some context as we jump back into verse 10. He, he tasted death, why? By the grace of God, for who? For everyone. And, and here we go, verse 10, for it was fitting. And it was fitting. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus needed perfecting. What it really means in the way that the, the sentence is kind of structured is that Jesus actually um, completed the mission that he was sent to do. So it was made perfect in the sense that it was completed, that Jesus unflinchingly went and obeyed what it was that needed to be done. And so he perfected the mission, what he was sent to be done. Verse 10 is the gospel. And it's clarifying that salvation was established and made possible before you or I were born. Before we were ever born. Before you and I could perform. (laughs) Before you or I could try and earn salvation, Jesus paid the penalty for everyone. Sons here, it says, uh, sons to glory. Bringing many sons to glory. Sons is actually a legally regarded uh, statement. And it's, means descendants and heirs that would be given uh, the right to be associated with the person that was passing on uh, all of their belongings. So when we say like sons, we're actually, it would be a, um, I guess, a compliment in that society for a female to be referenced in the context of sons, okay? So what it's saying is both men and women, all human, in fact, some translations actually say children, that that the children of God are actually heirs, sons, heirs, that they're able to be descendants. They're adopted into Christianity, and it's done. So if it's done, what are the implications? What if we clarified our perspective to realize that our purpose on earth isn't to earn our salvation. That in fact, maybe we weren't having to earn our salvation at all while being blessed and prospering, but rather to acknowledge what God has done and live on mission for his glory. Consider for a second if you really understood that that which needed to be done was done and that the goal was not to gather, but to actually be sent. Think about it like this. I have three children. Imagine if I told my children to do something. Like, hey, guys, 
uh, go clean your rooms. That never happens. It's not even, doesn't even need to be done ever. They're just such great kids. So no, just kidding. <laughs> uh, so what if I was like, hey, listen, you know, go, go clean your rooms. And their response to me was, I'm your child, right? I'd be like, yes, I told you to go clean your rooms. No, just dad, I'm sorry. You're sorry for what? Well, I mean, last night, uh, you know, I got, I got into an argument. I did some things I wasn't supposed to do. I said some things I wasn't supposed to say. Am I still your kid? Be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, I know. Last night, you got into some things. I, I said I forgave you. We're past that. I'm, I'm telling you to go clean your room. No, no, just so we're clear. <laughs> just so we're clear, Dad. I'm still your kid, right? I mean, am I still your kid? You're like, yes, you are my child. What is your problem? Why are we having this conversation? I told you to do something. Go do it. I love you, Dad. Can I just stand here and just tell you that I love you? Can you go do what I told you to do while telling me that you love me? Because I'm cool loving you and I absolutely love you, but I have told you to do something and for some reason you're obsessed with trying to clarify that you're my child and I'm telling you, you are my child. Like, can I have a snack first? (laughs) Now it's getting too close to home, right? Like, Yes, you can have a snack, I guess. Can I have chocolate? No, it's 8 o'clock at night. Go clean your room. Why can't I have chocolate? Don't you love me? (laughs) Come on, Dad. Are you my father? Are you my father? Yes, I'm your dad. That's why I love you. I don't want your teeth to rot out of your face. So no, you can't have chocolate at night. Go clean your room. (laughs) Dad, I love you. I just wish I could have some chocolate right now. Listen, it's absurd. We're all laughing. It's what we do. God, I love you. I love you too. Go do what I've told you to do. Go live on mission. Oh, God, I got a little angry on the way to church. And I kind of cut somebody off. And I did some things I regret, you know. And do you forgive me? Yeah, I forgive you. Now go do what I told you to do. No, but God, am I? Like, are we good? I'm not going to go through the whole illustration. Don't worry. All right. But I'm just, (laughs) my wife is more relieved by that than you guys are. Trust me. She's like, oh my gosh. But you can put it in there. The the things that that God is speaking to us to be about, to go and do. And, And we're saying like, hey, can we just have some stuff? God, is it cool if I can have some stuff right now? Like, what are you talking about? No, maybe that stuff isn't good for you. Maybe I have a perspective that you don't understand. Maybe if you get down in that valley and start cutting the tree down, something's going to crush you. Like maybe you don't get it right now. Maybe you just need to be about what it is I have told you to do. Have some stability in the fact that you are my child. Go do what I've told you to do. Imagine what our lives would be like. Imagine what the world would be like. If men and women that understand they're children of the living God stop trying to gather stuff and and try to stabilize the things that make sense to us based on our perspective of this world here and instead said, listen, I'm going to have confidence that I'm a child of the living God and I'm going to be sent. I'm going to do what it is that he's called me to do. I'm going to say yes to, to whatever whisper might be impressed upon my heart. 
Verse 11 says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Who sanctifies, which means makes holy, who sanctifies and who are sanctified. Those two phrases in that verse, who sanctifies and who are sanctified in the original Greek are the same exact word. They're the same exact word. And get this, they're almost the same tense. Both are present tense. The first is active. It's present active. So what that means is that that God who sanctifies right now, he is presently, actively, right now sanctifying you. The God who sanctifies you right now. And the second is present but passive. So it's right now, but get this, you don't contribute anything. You're passive. God who sanctifies right now is sanctifying you right now. That's what the text is saying. So right now, God, the one source, is sanctifying you. And you're sanctified right now because of a work he is doing in you. That's what he's doing in you. You see, so sanctification, the process of being made holy, God is extending towards you right now, present tense active. He's doing a work in you. Are you a completed work? No, but sanctification, according to scripture, is immediate and ongoing. That at the moment that you cross that line of salvation, God sanctifies you, and then he begins to continue to make you holy. Immediate and ongoing sanctification. That he's not ashamed or remorseful. The word ashamed can also be replaced with remorseful to call you siblings, co-heirs. That we're co-heirs with Christ. We need to adjust our perspective. We need to adjust our perspective and realize that we are children of the living God, co-heirs with Christ. That we can walk in the fullness of that. Not in some way to, to demand things like, oh, because I am now a co-heir of Christ, am I going to get my way? No, it doesn't, that doesn't matter, right? Because when our perspective is clarified, when we're children of the living God, then we don't have to, to worry about our identity as whether or not we are children. And instead, we have to be focused on what it is he's speaking to us and calling us to do. And so verse 12 says, <clears throat> saying, and then there's in quotations, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 12 is a quote of Psalm 22, 22. And what's interesting about that Old Testament quote is it's, a, uh, it's kind of a conclusion to, a, uh, to a, a section of scripture, Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21, is actually one of the most tremendously um, painful passages of scripture that you'll read in the sense that someone's being uh, tortured. Tremendous suffering. And it's very clearly a messianic text. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 22 of Psalm says, my God, why have you forsaken me? We talked about that last week. And so the, the author of Hebrews is masterfully weaving together 
this text that is in the Psalter that they would be familiar with as Hebrews to say, listen, that story of suffering, that story of suffering verses 1 through 21 of Psalm 22 that you're so familiar with, verse 22, at the conclusion of the suffering, this person declares something and what they declare, he puts in there at verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of of the pouring out of my life, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. What it's saying is Jesus with his siblings will celebrate the finished work of salvation. That the pain and suffering that he endured is worthy of our celebration because of who we are as a result of what it is he has done. Then very similarly, he goes on to verse 13 and quotes from the Old Testament again. And again, he says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. These are quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. These Old Testament quotes show that those who trust in the Lord are children of God. A whole mess of of dots connecting about this idea that the gospel is way more relational and familial than we realize or that maybe our perspective has had room for. So what are the implications of clarified perspective? If we have clarified perspective, it leads to illuminated expectation. If we understand what it is that we're seeing, if we have clarity around the perspective that God has, all of a sudden, it illuminates our expectation. If for a moment, my dad could have called me up to the ridge, pointed to the tops of the trees, and said, hey, watch this. This is why. And cut the tree down, and it spun and fell and crashed right in front of me, I'd have been like, oh, I get it. I get it. Isn't it interesting that our expectations are only tempered when we have clarity on our perspective. Here's the problem with that. We won't often have clarity on every perspective in every situation. So there's tension. That's the tension we live in. But God, why? Why? This seems so unfair. As if we have a right to go to the ridge and to say, explain it to me. (laughs) Show me your perspective. Who am I? Who am I, God, that you're mindful of me? That's not a declaration of of an expectation of perspective. It's a declaration of the reality that we are children of the living God. And that if we're willing to trust his perspective, we can find peace in the midst of the difficulties of life. That we can temper our expectations. Temper our expectations, not because we have the whole story or because we understand, but because we trust our Father. You see, the only thing that will temper our expectation is when our perspective is clarified by someone we trust. Right? So, let me explain go forward a couple more weeks. We're out in the woods. My dad goes, hey, you should probably move over there. I'm going to drop this tree and I think it's going to twist and fall there. I was like, okay. 
right? I just, I wasn't like, well, but I think, meh. Like, no, why? Because I saw that he has a perspective and a knowledge base that I don't understand. And I trust him because he's my dad and he loves me and he doesn't want to harm me. Do you know how much God loves you? Can you trust him? Or are you sitting there with your arms folded being like, listen, I think I got this one, God. Like, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I think I deserve something. Because listen, if that's it, you haven't experienced the 2020 moment. The 20, uh, 2020, right? Hindsight's 2020. Yeah, okay. You haven't experienced, I was like, what am I talking about? You haven't experienced that moment of clarity where you've been on the other side, where you've seen everything fall into place and go, oh, wow. All right, God, you got it. You have a perspective that I don't understand, and I'm going to rest in that. I can trust you. I can trust you. Illuminated expectation does not mean that we can temper our expectation of God. Right? That's what we want it to mean. (laughs) We want it to be like, okay, so then what exactly can I expect from God? This almighty owner of cattle on a thousand hills. Can I get me some of that? That might be too spiritual jargon of a statement, but trust me, it's funny. Anyway, <clears throat> it's not about clarifying what it is we can expect from God, but rather what we will, not what God will do, but rather what we will do because of what he has done. If we are set apart, if we're sanctified, and if we're being sanctified, if we're children of God, then what should we be doing with our one and only life? What should you be doing with your one and only life? If you really, really understand that it's God who sanctifies you and that he's continually sanctifying you and that you are child of God, that you're co-heirs with Christ, if that doesn't have to be worked out, if you could just wrap your mind around that, and it's not about what you can get, it's not about the, the snack or the blessing or anything like that, it's not the, the re-clarification, like, I'm still your kid, right? I'm still your kid, right? I love you, I love you, I love you. He's like, I get it. What have I called you to do? Go do it. That's the expectation part. It's funny, or it's tragic, that we spend so much of our lives trying to earn our salvation that has been awarded to us, so little of our lives doing anything about what it is that's been done. Right? We, it's done. Jesus paid the price. If you have crossed the line of salvation, if you have surrendered your life to him, and you remain in relationship to him, then what is it that he's calling you to do? What, what are you doing about it? It can't be as, as simple as like, well, I tell him I love him. And, uh, you know, when I mess up, I let him know I'm sorry. And, uh, I mean, I come here every week, you know. <laughs> That's something. It is something. They're all pieces of something. But you can, you can miss the whole if you're not ca- careful, if you're not cautious. So I want to challenge you. Are you sent? Are you living like someone that is fully aware that they're a child of the living God 
co-heir with Christ and you are being sent to do whatever it is that he's called you to do. We say every week that the text requires something of us. And so if you would, close your eyes and maybe bow your heads or at least bow your heads if you don't want to close your eyes so that way you're not distracted as there's some movement in the room. The reason why I want you to do that is I want you to focus on maybe what it is that God might be asking you to consider. The question is this that I want you to to leave this place considering. This is the application. How will I partner with Jesus missionally? How will I partner with Jesus missionally? I can't imagine, I can't imagine the, the state that our world would be in, our local community, our schools, our workplaces, the marketplace. I can't imagine what it would look like if an army of people really rested in the reality of who they are as children of the living God and took on the responsibility to say, how is it that I'm partnering with Jesus missionally? I'm going to be on mission. What is it that you're calling me to do, Lord? You see, because if your perspective is clarified, it's funny how the the worries of this world kind of start to get smaller. Like, if you're really thinking about being a, a child of the living God, maybe it looks like Maybe less of trying to negotiate your retirement and more like trying to help people that desperately need it and have no way of getting any type of help. And I don't mean simply monetarily, although I do mean that on some level. And we're a very generous church for as young as we are when it comes to to needs that are made known. And so I'm, I'm not faulting you on that level at all. I'm simply saying, what is it that, that God is challenging you to? For some of you in the room, maybe partnering with Jesus missionally, maybe your application is this. Maybe it means starting the mission. It means crossing the line of salvation. For some of you in this room, you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. You've still white-knuckled onto the, the things of this world. You want so bad to, to get ahead, to to earn it, to prove it, whatever it looks like. And you're saying, listen, I think I'm kind of negotiating this thing called life pretty well. And on some days, maybe you're even fooling yourself. But most days, most days it feels like sand running through your fingers. So I want to challenge you this morning, maybe for you, partnering with Jesus missionally means starting the mission, asking him to be the Lord and leader of your life. If that's you this morning, it's as simple as praying a prayer. The quietness of your mind right now to say, Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I know you died for me. You paid a penalty you didn't have to pay. Before I was even born, you laid down your life for me. For others of us in this room, maybe partnering with Jesus missionally means some form of a God risk. Maybe getting involved, serving in a ministry. Maybe taking a risk and 
and giving to something, even, even outside of this church, I'm, I'm not pretending that we're the only way that you can bless other people by any stretch of the imagination. How are you partnering with Jesus missionally? Not, how are you a philanthropist? You see, because philanthropy can be a lot about yourself. Because man, people can get pretty impressed when you help other people out and it makes you feel good. But what's Jesus calling you to do? Maybe the thing that nobody will ever know. The quiet thing. The thing done in silence. The thing that's a God risk. I don't know. I don't pretend to know. But I know that you have dreams. That God has placed a vision in your life. So I just want to challenge you to dream. What if? What are the what ifs that God's whispering into your heart and into your mind to be willing to step out? Heavenly Father, come before you this morning and we just, we declare ourselves available. We declare ourselves available to, to stop striving to earn that which is already provided to rest in what it is that you have done, but to not allow the story to end there. To realize that your death on a cross wasn't simply for our personal salvation, but that it was so that we could lean in and join you on mission to speak of who you are to people that desperately need to know it. To be givers, to be generous. to recklessly love the unlovable. So God, we surrender to you this morning and we ask that you'd whisper to our hearts, that you'd lead our footsteps, Lord, that we would leave this place sent. Would you speak to us now, Lord, as we just respond to who you are and what you've done?